Who needs friends? We need friends. We need friends and medical That's treatment. <laughs> it's how to win friends and influenza. Oh, I'm not paying you for that jingle, but I'm going to take it anyway. <laughs> Hello and welcome to yet another exciting episode of How to Win Friends and Influenza. This is a podcast all about a life in health and things related to health. But before we start this show, let's talk about some breaking news. What's happened? Well, it turns out there's been a race for the number one fan position of this show. Is it time for Sarah to move aside? It looks like we've had an amazing, glowing review from Ben Murray. Word for word, Ben says, I love How to Win Friends and Influenza. It's well made and answers all the real questions on our minds. Lily is an excellent interviewer and manages to keep each episode informative and entertaining. Step aside, Richard Feidler. Well, thanks, Ben. It sounds really suspicious, like I just made that up because it's so positive, but I assure you that Ben Murray is a very real person, and this is a very real shout-out to you. So thanks so much. On that note, Sarah, maybe it's time to step up your game. I just have to remind you that there's only one number one fan spot. And with that aside, let's move on to the episode itself. Now, let's talk about food, because aside from medicine, food is a really, really important part of life. You really need it to stay alive. Now, unless you're lactose intolerant, one of the greatest foods in the world, officially, according to me, is mac and cheese. Condolences if you are lactose intolerant. Now, mac and cheese is amazing because the ingredients by themselves kind of aren't that great. If you have mac by itself, it's a bit plain. If you have the cheese by itself, it's a bit overwhelming. And again, if you're lactose intolerant, probably your worst nightmare. But when you put these things together, when you have mac and cheese as a combination, it's brilliant, it's superb, it's delicious. And that's kind of like nurses and doctors. If you have nursing by itself or doctoring by itself, if that's even a real word, it's just one part of the healthcare system. But when you put them together, they make a great team and what they work towards is patient welfare. So on that note, I've got on the show Pete. Now, not when he's not busy doing session drumming, hanging out with his wife and son, Pete is an anesthetics nurse. He's really passionate about patient advocacy and patient welfare too. So welcome on the show, Pete. Thank you, Lily. It's great to be here. And it's great to have you on the show. So could you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I, um, obviously, my name's Pete. I've been nursing for about 17 years or so. Um, 15 and a half of that have been in anesthetics and recovery in operating theatres. Um, and I also do a little bit of lecturing on the side for a health education company. So that's my professional life. And of course, you've mentioned the drumming, but we don't talk about that at work because it gets too <laughs> sidetracked. So it's too much fun to fit in one too episode. Too much fun, that's right. right. All right, so how did you get into nursing? Um, kind, of, kind of by default. Um, I was kind of highly encouraged, if not quasi-forced by my mother, um, <laughs> under the sufferance of, well, music isn't going to pay the bills, you know. Um, so I, uh, after I finished my HSC, I was lucky enough to get a traineeship as an enrolled nurse. And so as an 18-year-old boy, I started at Liverpool Hospital after about 16 weeks at TAFE, I started nursing on the floor. So that was quite daunting as an 18-year-old. But uh, that's sort of why nursing, I kind of just fell into it. Um, and uh, fortunate for me, I'm good at it and I'm passionate about it and I've found something that I enjoy. Um, of course, there are always days where you hate work and you never want to come back again, but that is just the nature of work-life balance. Mm, and I guess that's why they call it work, and that's, that's right. why they pay you for it. That's right. <laughs> now, isn't it 
annoying when your parents give you advice that turns out to be accurate in the long run. Specifically <laughs> when mum's been a, a midwife for her entire career mm. as well. So, you know, it's not just mothers know best. She knows the ins and outs of the health system herself. So it's not like she was recommending a career stream that she had no idea about. She knew, you know, she'd be doing it since she was 18 as well. So mm. Now, that's a really good segue to an important topic, which is, What's the difference between all those acronyms, AIN, EN, RN, and midwives and nurses? What are they all? Um, okay, so principally when people would think of nurses, they think of registered nurses. Registered nurses in Australia um, and in the US and in most countries around the world have a bachelor's degree. They have a bachelor of nursing um, and, that's in the, and, and it's taught over sort of a three-year time constraint. Um, and that entails, obviously, the university life, as do med students, as well as some um, practical skills. Um, and they are the uh, basically what everyone would recognise as a nurse who have every, all the skills or that nurses would expect, uh, that people would expect nurses to have, I'm sorry. Um, but under that, we've got a few different, uh, different levels of nursing. So enrolled nurses is where I started. Um, and enrolled nurses have... Um, slightly less training, but also have slightly less responsibility. So the restrictions on enrolled nurses practice within New South Wales, at least, is that they can't um, administer um, IV Schedule 8 medications such as morphine, fentanyl, that kind of stuff. Um, they can't um, be in management or education roles. They can't be in leadership roles because they don't necessarily have as much clinical training to do that. Um, I was very fortunate in my, in my job stream that I had... Um, been uh, pushed into a situation in anaesthetics, it's quite a critical care area. And in the hospital I was working at, it was only enrolled nurses who were doing anaesthetics. So we were kind of brought up to a, a, a very high level um, and I kind of reached the top of my game, which is why I transferred into being a registered nurse. Um, assistant in nursing, AIN. AINs are, the old terms for them used to be the nurse's aide. Um, basically what they are, they are basically assist with general cares of patients. And when I say that, I mean, you know, showers, washers... Um, feeding patients who aren't able to feed themselves. Um, and you'll see some, some of these people um, working in the hospitals, but a vast amount of time you'll see these people are often in nursing homes um, and aged care facilities, basically just assisting people with their everyday care. Um, and the other question was midwives. Mm -hmm. um, so up until maybe five or six years ago, or maybe ten years ago now, um, midwives had to be trained as registered nurses first and then had to go and do a, a postgraduate diploma in midwifery. Um, now there's the opportunity for midwives to go in as a direct entry and so they get a Bachelor of Midwifery. And, and they uh, specifically, specifically deal with um, women and infant health. Um, so everything from antenatal care to delivering babies to postnatal care and sometimes even early childhood nursing, uh, early childhood health as well. And uh, things like lactation consultancy and help with breastfeeding and, and general care of um, you know, women and their, their babies. Okay. And are these the main roles within nursing or are there any others? Well, nursing, like, a bit like medicine, um, nursing itself is huge. Um, there are as many, as many specialties as there are in medicine, there are in nursing. Because, uh, well, and we'll get to this a bit later, I'm sure, but doctors and nurses sort of work hand in hand to provide care for the patient. Um, so uh, when you go to nursing school, you go and get a general understanding of what basic nursing skills are. And they are, you know, everything from washing patients, how to talk to patients, how to interact with patients, and also things like um, basic life support, 
um, administering of medications, oral, IV, IM, techniques like that, um, some interventions like placement of nasogastric tubes and indwelling catheters, that kind of stuff. Um, but they are only the basic skills. It's only after you finish nursing school and you go into your new grad year, which is a little bit like your internship year, um, that you start to develop an understanding of where you might like to be. So you might go into nursing school thinking you're going to be the world's greatest emergency department nurse, and all of a sudden you turn around and go, you know what, I'm really, really interested in geriatrics, or I'm really, really interested in psychiatry, or... All, all kinds of different avenues. So um, the very basic general nursing degree that you do is only the very initial start of your career when you uh, move on. Mm. And it sounds like nursing is really practical, really hands-on. You can't be scared of people and of touching things and doing things. Is that right? It's true. And I, although kind of uh, strangely, it also attracts quite some quite introverted people as well. So it's not necessarily you have to be this outstanding extrovert um, to be able to survive nursing. In fact, um, you it's a very scientific role now. So you have to have you know a good understanding of biomedical science. You have to have a good understanding of um, pharmacology. You have to have a good because you you have to have a good understanding of um, all the skills that you need to have to uh, help care for the patient and um, the reason that you have to have those skills is so you need to do the best for the best uh, provide the best care for the patient that is possible right and that comes to back um, comes back to what you mentioned earlier which is nurses and doctors working together mm. because we have this the same the most common goal there is in health which is to do right by the patient to mm. help the patient recover or do what we can to care for them That's right now, you've got a really interesting role because you're doing anaesthetics nursing, which is in the surgical theatres. Yep. So before we get into that, what about nurses on the wards? What's a typical day like? Um, well, nursing is a 24-7 job. A typical so, day or night, I well, suppose. Well, <laughs> that's right. But hospital nursing, I should say, mm. is a 24-7 job. Right. Um, there are avenues in nursing, um, such as my wife. Sorry, my wife's a nurse as well. Um, we tend to breed together. It's what we do. We spend a lot of time together, so we end up together anyway. I wonder um, if your son will become a nurse as well. Oh, the chances are very high, I'm sure. Um, I, I've already started reading medical textbooks. No, not really. Um, so there are avenues in nursing that you can have a nine-to-five job if that uh, suits you and your family and what you want to do, um, which is the role that my wife's gone into. However, nursing within a hospital, particularly an acute um, tertiary hospital like we're sitting in here, um, it's a 24-7 job. Um, so there's no sort of strict rules that you know any shift is easier than any, any other. Um, but let's just start in the morning. I would expect a, a morning shift to start at 7 a.m., Yes, that often that means getting out of bed at sort of 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, depending on how far you live from the hospital. Right. Cause and that's when it's like, still dark. Yeah, and when it's still dark, particularly with the middle of winter at the moment. So there are many days where I've arrived at work in the dark and gone home in the dark. Wow. It happens. Um, so you arrive at 7, and then you would get handover over the, um, from the night shift nurses over um, who's in the wards, what's going on with them, um, and what's the plan for those individual people. And then you'd go from a bed-to-bed um, handover and actually um, introduce yourself to the patient, um, meet the patient so the patient knows who you are and who their nurse is for the day, um, and all, also um, talk about what the individual needs are for the patient. And if the patient has any individual concerns that they want to bring up um, about the next day, whether they need to get in contact with a social worker or whether they need to get in contact with the team because they haven't seen a you know a consultant um in a while and they want to actually address, you know, uh, what's coming up with their care. Um, and then, you know, depending on, I mean, depending on what kind of ward you're on, if you're on a surgical ward, you'll then be uh, madly preparing people to get them to theatre for the start of the list because um, theatre time 
Um, operations need to start um, at about 8.30 in the morning. So that only really gives you, by the time you've done the handover and by the time you've done the meet and greet with the patients, you've only really got an hour before the patient needs to start to have their operation. Um, so that means just making sure the paperwork's in order, making sure that the consent's done, making sure that the patient's aware of why they're going to theatre, um, making sure that the next of kin is aware as well, um, and just keeping patients informed. And then you might have to escort them to theatre um, and give handover to the theatre nurses who will then take on their care. All the while, you'll have four other patients up there who need your uh, up on the ward, sorry, who will need your um, assistance. So that's also you know providing them regular medication. So if they're post-operatively, um, you need to you know do their clinical observations. You need to give them their medications that they might be prescribed. Things like antibiotics, particularly surgically, um, antibiotics, some analgesia. Um, some uh, DVT prophylaxis, that kind of stuff, um, as well as getting helping them with their um, you know everyday cares. Now, if they're independent if, and they've just got a broken leg, it's just you know maybe helping them get onto a chair so they can get into the shower and shower themselves and all that kind of stuff. Because it's all about all about promoting their normal life, um, not develop not developing them into a state of institutionalisation and having everything done for them. Because um, that's what used to happen years and years and years ago, uh, and they found that um, patients had really, really struggled getting back into their normal life after being in hospital for so long. We have the advantage now of hospital stays not very, being anywhere near as long as they used to be. You know, there were times when you used to have a cholecystectomy and you used to be in hospital for six weeks post-operatively. Wow. You know, because um, they were open cholecystectomies, they weren't laparoscopic at the time. It was a big, you know, huge scar underneath mm. the rib cage, all that kind of stuff. Um, and analgesia wasn't as good. Surgical techniques may not have been as refined. Um, so, you know, you could have been in six weeks in the hospital and you were sort of convalescing for six weeks. Um, now you can have a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Some private hospitals do them as day surgery, so you're home the same day. Um, other places, you know, it's a 24 to 48 hour stay, just depending on your indication. So, you know, the progress of healthcare has, has definitely developed. So patients aren't in, in as hosp in hospital as long. Um, and I remember hearing um, one of your previous podcasts. Yes, I'm going for that number one fan job. Um, <laughs> uh, the trauma consultant saying that trauma's changed a lot as well. No longer a patient sort of sitting in ICU mm -hmm. for weeks and weeks and weeks post trauma. You know, they with interventional radiology and that kind of stuff. They're really changing the way patients are being treated and, and giving them the best care possible. Anyway, moving on. We're talking about a general day. So we're sort of already at 8.30. Patients have had um, uh, their breakfast and they've had a shower and all that kind of stuff. And then you probably, you know, the physios had come round and you might need to give patients more analgesia um, so the physios can do their thing. Um, all the while, liaising, you know, people want to get x-rays. So it's a lot about time, time management. It's about priority management. Mm, yeah. um, got to be organised. You've got to be like. organised, Absolutely. <laughs> Um, then, you know, the, the afternoon shift will come in at 1.30 and there have been some days where I've worked on the ward a long time ago, I have to admit, I haven't worked on the ward for a long time, but you blink and you miss the day. All of a sudden, your day's gone so quickly, you've done your medications, you've done everything, you've taken people to x-ray, taken people to theatre, you blink and all of a sudden, afternoon shift's wanting their hand, wanting handover so they can then continue the care of the patient. It's probably a great thing. It means you love your job, I think. Yeah, it yeah. is, it does, but it also means it's a very hectic job. Mm. Um, at the moment... The current policy of health is um, a ratio system where there are five patients to one nurse in a general ward. Right. Um, some, and, but that doesn't necessarily take into account the acuity of the patient um, if they're on the general ward. Like if you've got five immediately post-op patients, that's quite 
significantly more taxing um, just in terms of how closely they need to be monitored for post-anesthesia care and post-operative care um, in comparison to people who have been, you know, they're post-operative five days and they're just getting some physio and they're almost on the way out the door. So it's just a matter of um, balancing your workload. Um, but then, you know, going on to afternoon shift, there might be dressings to do, there might be, you know, more medications to do, more escorts to radiology and theatre because, you know, theatre lists will go till six or seven right. at night. Um, and then you also have post-ops coming in as well. So the patients that go to theatre actually leave theatre at some point. Um, so that means that, you know, you'd have to then look after them in an afternoon shift. Most post-operative patients come back on an afternoon shift. And then leading into night shift as well. And night shift generally have... Um, less nurses on the floor with the same amount of patients. And so is so it a bit scarier? It, it can be a bit scarier, but then, um, you know, it's, it's well documented that no one performs at their utmost at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, that's why only emergency surgery happens overnight. That's mm -hmm. why we don't do elective operations unless we absolutely, you know, unless yep. the patient's actually critically ill. Um, and um, because there is that, you know, your bodies aren't designed to be awake at 3 a.m., Mm. Um, for that reason, I mean, as much as I love coffee, um, I when I work night shift, I don't drink coffee anymore because I started getting palpitations because I was relying on it too much. Um, so, you know, the caffeine was getting to me, so I'm a teetotaling uh, person in the, in the evening. But right. it's just a little t an extra tidbit about me. <laughs> um, but all that, all that said, that's your general day. But that's also not taking into account any um, crisis that might occur. So you might have um, someone who's getting more ill. You might have someone who's developing sepsis. You might have someone who's having a cardiac event. And you need to be able to, to react to that as well. Um, so it's not, nurses are not just, you know, pill pushers and, you know, paper writers. They have to look at things clinically. They have to look at things critically. And they have to um, be able to observe, report, and then react. So it's not about making decisions on patients' care from a medical perspective, but it's at least observing what's going on to then report to the medical team that are looking after the patient so they can make some more doctory, doctoring <laughs> decisions. Um, and that's kind of a, just a general overview of roughly what nurses do. Um, that's ward nursing. Um, as I said, my disclaimer is I haven't done it in many years, so I apologise to any of the other <laughs> ward nurses who are listening. If I've got your job terribly wrong, I'm sorry. Um, but I am definitely more uh, anaesthetic and critical care-minded these days. Okay, just before we get into the theatre nursing, thank you so much for that really in-depth general overview. I can just tell by the way you've laid out everything that you're really organised and as we've discussed, that's something that you really need in nursing, which is awesome because that's exactly what you want when managing patients. You want a really systematic approach. You want people who are going to be observing the patients as much as needed. And five to one caseload sounds like it could be really tiring, but at least that is better than the possibility of, say, one nurse to the entire ward. I think that would be really terrifying. And that all comes back down to patient safety as well. Mm, the reason yeah. that exists is because of patient safety. And we're actually looking... I mean, I'm, I'm not a union guy. <laughs> I am a member of the nurses' union, but um, that's for a whole other reason. But I know that there is a campaign to actually adjust those to, mm. for patient safety ratios. Yeah. Um, but because we are a government department in public health... Um, the funding is restricted and very finely scrutinised as to how it's spent. Um, so there's a, always discussions slash arguments slash campaigns from the mm -hmm. Nurses Association to try and get better ratios um, of nursing staff to patients for patient safety. Yeah. It's, not a, it's, not a, uh, it's not a campaign uh, to try and make nurses' lives easier. It's just to make patients safe. 
Yeah, I guess medicine, health, all of that is about striking a balance between you know, what you can do and what resources you have. So you're trying to do the best you can with the finite resources that you, that you have at your disposal. Mm. Yeah, now, uh, with nursing, why do some people go down the ward route and some people go down the theatre route? Is there any... Is um, it just fancy or is there a correlation, like different... I, I'm a firm believer that um, after you finish your nursing training, you go and get a general overview of what nursing is, but you kind of just end up leaning towards one thing or another. You know, if you're sitting at nursing school and you're fascinated with how the heart works Mm -hmm. and you're fascinated with the intricacies of the electroconduction pathway and of the vasculature of the heart, Mm -hmm. then the chances are pretty high that you're going to end up working on cardiology somewhere. You know, Mm -hmm. if you spend your spare time looking through ECG Made Easy, Mm -hmm. um, you know, everyone's favourite textbook, um, you know, if you spend all that kind of stuff and you're fascinated by that, the chances are you're going to be leaning towards cardiac nursing. Um, there are things where you just this is gain your interest. I think it's probably the same for doctors. You know, you go through your clinical placements mm. at university and you get a taste of, oh, what, what I could really get into. Um, and then there are things we sort of steer right away from. You know, oh, God, I hated that. That were, You know, rehab medicine just wasn't for me. You know, and, and there's nothing wrong with those specialties because all those specialties are needed. There's no specialty that outweighs another. There's no golden ticket. There's no fantastic thing. Um, there, it, it really is, it really does come down to what gains your interest. Um, and I'm really thankful that... Um, Anesthetics garnered my interest because it's technical as well as uh, scientific as well as patient interaction. Um, But I I found that the the old adage is if you don't have a bedside manner, you become a theatre nurse Um, because uh, you often don't have to talk to the patients for very long um, because they are anaesthetised. But it's it's far from that. I think it's more... um, what actually gains your interest and and what you're actually become passionate about. Yeah. And the only way you can develop that passion is by being exposed to things, which is why I tell people who are very young in nursing, and let's face it, most young nurses are probably 20, 21 when they finished university. The world's their oyster. So they go and, you know, and the whole reason that the new grad program exists is to get further skilled because it has been recognised that at university you don't necessarily polish those skills in that short frame, to- frame of time you are on clinical placement with university. Um, so that whole first year of nursing is to develop your clinical skills, your time management skills, but also to get interest and to see different parts of the hospitals that you might be interested in. Because let's face it, as, as good as and varied as clinical placements are, you might have never ever stepped foot into a radiology suite and have no idea what medical imaging nurses do. You escort a patient down there from the ward and all of a sudden the world's your oyster because you go, wow, they're doing all this stuff. They're doing a bit of medical, they're doing some procedural interventions. They're doing a little bit of sedation stuff. They're doing all sorts of things. So it's really about um, paying attention to what you're learning in university at the very initial point, but also developing interest over time. And that doesn't necessarily mean that um, in nursing, unlike medicine in a way, in nursing you can work as a cardiology nurse for 15 years and go, you know what, I'm kind of done with mm-hmm. cardiology now. 
I might like to go and work in emergency. Oh wow! So it's really flexible. So you can be flexible. You can you can you know apply for different jobs. So unlike medicine, where you're kind of down this consultancy mm. path and you end up becoming a member, a fellow of a college of a certain thing, that's a whole another avenue for mm. you to you know if you're a surgeon and you want to become. Uh, an anaesthetist. That's a whole different yeah. college. You have to start your life. You have again. to start your life again and become a re- registrar right. again. And you know, no one wants to do that. Yeah. But the advantage in nursing is it can be that little bit flexible because all the skills interrelate. Um, and so a cardiology nurse would function very well in an emergency department because you know of all the infarcts and cardiology mm. stuff you'd see in emergency. So they, their skills might be beneficial to that. Same as if you were you know a, a, um, a rehab nurse and you decided that you wanted to go and step up in the acuity, you might go into a, an acute geriatrics unit just to, to you know to, to further push your skills. Um, and there is also a good um, family balance as well. Mm. Um, the the I think the statistic is 80%, 85% of the nursing workforce are female. Um, and so um, there is obviously a big lot of family pressure in that. Um, and so there is provision for people to have return to work programs so they can work less hours um, until their child is of school, um, school going age so they can have a reduced hours contract and then return to work full time. Um, and so there is that little bit of flexibility and shift flexibility as well because it is a 24-hour job. Um, so a prime example is when I was a child, um, my mum was working permanent night shifts so she could be home with us during the day. She was a very tired woman. <laughs> However, um, she was able to work permanent night right, shifts yeah. so she was around when we were kids. Yeah, so that's really good to hear about nursing. It sounds like in that respect, especially with the uh, specialties, it's really flexible. So as you pointed out with medicine if you go down a path you're sort of confined to that path unless you backtrack down the path and go down another path Mm. but with nursing there's a lot more range so the interesting thing about medicine is when you choose a specialty there's two aspects one is the topic area like you might really be into cardiology in the heart but the other consideration is how practical some people are more procedural driven so for example they might want to do scopes in gastroenterology as opposed to something very hands-off where they're just talking a lot and giving a lot of advice to patients Mm. So it sounds like in nursing, there's a lot more flexibility. So you get to consider the topic a lot more, but there's a lot of transferability, say, between cardiology to something else. So that's great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll use the case study of my wife, for example. She's trained as a, a registered nurse and then a midwife. Mm. And then she worked as a midwife for six months and then she decided midwifery wasn't for her. So she went into youth and adolescent health. And then oh. ever since then, she's been in youth and adolescent health. Mm. So it's a completely, you know, and she's been able to use some of those midwifery skills with you know, young, vulnerable, pregnant teenagers mm, right, right. Um, working as a youth health CNS. Um, and then she's developed into a management role now. So like, it's all very, you know, you don't, you're not necessarily locked into one job. Yeah. Having said that, there are some people, such as myself, who have found their job and they are going to stick in that job probably for the rest of their career. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you have to change. There's no mandated rubber stamp, look, you can yeah. only work X amount of years in a job. You can find a job and then work in that for your entire career. Or you can be flexible and see the world and you know do all different things. Yeah, and I really like what you said earlier about no specialty being particularly better than another, except anaesthetics, of course. <clears throat> I'm biased, yeah. <laughs> But other than that, it's it's great because how this world works is that everyone has pretty different preferences. So somehow everyone's diverse and it just works out that people fall into different specialties. Now, it's not like Pokemon where one starter Pokemon is obviously better than the others, which I think is Bulbasaur. I'm prepared for the hate mail. Now, maybe nobody <laughs> wants to be number one fan. But, but medicine, health, nursing, 
all of that is a little bit different because every specialty is needed and every specialty serves a different organ or a different purpose. Yeah. So we're all equal. We're all friends here. Yes, we are. That's right. And and what would a friend do? A friend would give you moral support. So when you say that uh, theatre nurses end up being theatre nurses because they don't have you know patient bedside manner, I'd like to say that's not true because there is a lot of teamwork amongst the surgical and theatre people. So, for example, you might be working very closely with the anaesthetics doctor or with the people doing the surgery. So there's definitely a lot of social interaction all mm. around. So let's get on to the really, really, really exciting part, which is what does a theatre nurse do? Um, so in Australia, mm -hmm. um, we are very lucky that we have a representative body called ACORN, the Australian College of Operating Room Nurses. Catchy name. Catchy name, <laughs> ACORN. Um, uh, it's basically um, the... They are the governing body of theatre nurses. So it's by theatre nurses for theatre nurses. Um, and they um, are able to set out a set of rules. So that has basically stipulated now that for an operating theatre to give us to provide safe nursing care within an operating theatre, they need three nurses in an operating theatre. So that is the scrub nurse. So that is the nurse who you see in all the movies with the gloves on handing the instruments to the surgeon. Um, then there's the um, scout nurse or the circulating nurse, depending on what terminology you want to use. And they're basically the right-hand man, woman of the scrub nurse. Who is, they aren't scrubbed in theatre, um, but they are able to go out to open all the sterile equipment. They go out to the stock room and they bring stuff in if they need it. If there's things that are unforeseen, um, they could do some liaising with the theatre coordinator out at the front desk to see if there's things changed. Um, and then there's my favourite role, which is the anaesthetic nurse, who is the um, second pair of hands and the second pair of eyes for the anaesthetist. Um, so um, for, an, for an anaesthetic to safely happen within Australia, the College of Anaesthetists has decided that you need to have a trained anaesthetic assistant, um, and 98% of the time that is an anaesthetic nurse, um, and they are trained in... Um, airway skills as well as um, understanding how the anaesthetic machine works and providing safe anaesthetic care alongside the anaesthetist. And it's very important that I say that the roles don't cross over but they work in parallel to each other. So I don't have the same set of skills the anaesthetist has and the anaesthetist doesn't mm. need to have the same set of skills that I have. But to, for an anaesthetic to be safely administered, we need to work parallel to each other. There are some crossovers. So, for example, I cannulate. I could put cannulas in patients, but so can an anaesthetist. Mm. You know, I can hold a... Um, a face mask on a patient and you know and ventilate the patient but they are just crossover skills yep. but 95 percent of the role is working in parallel with the anesthetist so i'm not prescribing an anesthetics i'm not you know um deciding what type of anesthetic mm. the patient needs um, but i am preparing all the equipment for that i am working closely with the anesthetist and and understanding what the surgery is um, what kind of anaesthetic they might need, and actually discussing with the anaesthetist before they actually get to, before the patient actually gets to the theatre, so we can be prepared. Right, just like mac and cheese. Yeah, just, just like, like a certain podcast someone said. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right, so together you make a product that's greater than the individual parts. Not that you're already not great. I mean, you're pretty great. <laughs> all right, so you talked about three different kinds of nurses. Is the scrub nurse the only one who has to scrub in all the time? Um, uh, ideally, yes. Mm. The scrub nurse is the one who... Um, and, and I must say that the, inst inst the circulating nurse and the scrub nurse um, are, are often co-skilled. So the scrub nurse can work as, in, okay. as a scout nurse. and they yep. vice. So they often swap between cases. So someone isn't scrubbed on their feet all day okay. in masks and gloves and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but pretty um, much the scrub nurse is the one... Pretty much the scrub nurse is yeah. the one who is scrubbed okay. up. 
um, and uh, everyone else is unsterile from a nursing yep. perspective. So you don't want to high five or chest bump the scrub nurse, not because they're no. unlovable, but just because they're just very, because very they're clean. sterile, and and <laughs> they right. are very fastidious about um, having their instruments set out in a particular yep. way and making sure that everything is um, used in an aseptic manner yep. um, and maintaining the sterility of the sterile field. <clears throat> so you often, if you're a medical student looking in in theatre, you often get a glare from the scrub nurse because you're too close to the scrub table because you really really want to see what the operation's happening but um the scrub nurse will politely or maybe unpolitely tell you to uh, step away from their setup because their priority is keeping the patient safe and they're keeping the patient safe from infection um, and cross-contamination by maintaining that sterile field yeah now on that topic although you don't have to scrub in in your role um, there is quite a lot of um, need to wear a face mask yeah. a lot of the time. How do you deal with wearing, you know, something that's kind of uncomfortable for quite a lot of your job? Um, I have to have a bit of a disclaimer that I, I am probably... Well, no, that's not true. I'm not the worst. But um, <laughs> the there is a bit of a bone of contention into what masks actually do and mm. what they're there for. Yeah. Um, and that's a matter of policy policy change. However, the current policy of the hospital that I work in, that is that everyone in the, in the operating suite needs to wear a mask when they're in an operating theatre. So not when you're walking down the corridor with your coffee, you don't have to have yeah. your mask on. It's hard to drink coffee. It's hard right? to drink coffee through a mask. Um, <laughs> but um, it is important to wear masks. And how do I deal with wearing something uncomfortable? It's important to find have the correct fit. Mm. Um, and by that, I don't mean like shoe size or glove size. It's by actually just making sure that it's, you know, forming, the mask is forming to your nose correctly, um, that it is tied in such a manner that it's not too tight on your head. Yeah. A lot of the mistakes I see is people reefing it as tight as they can, <laughs> thinking, I can't possibly breathe into the... It's basically the mask is there to prevent... Um, the theory behind it is to prevent your breath going into the sterile field, mm -hmm. but the main reason for the mask is actually personal protective equipment for you. Yep. So if there is an arterial bleed or if there is some kind of airborne pathogen that we're unaware of, um, that you are somewhat protected from that. So the mask is there principally for the worker's benefit, the nurse or the doctor's benefit, not necessarily for the patient's benefit. There are parts of the world where um, laparoscopic surgery is done and no one wears a mask. Mm -hmm. Um, including the surgeon, including the scrub nurse, they don't wear a mask. Um, but it's just a matter of the individual policy of the institution. But I will say that the policy of the institution <laughs> that I work for, because um, my boss would kill me if I didn't say that, the policy of the institution yeah. that I work for is that everyone in the operating theatre needs to wear a mask. Um, and that is often a, a cause of, um, not argument, but I guess a little bit of argy-bargy between um, the anaesthetic department and often the, the, uh, the management nursing staff because um, the management nursing staff, you know, want to do for the best for the patient, but then the anaesthetists come back, oh, but there's no evidence to show that it does anything. And Anyway, there's a long argument there. But um, it's important to also realise that from an anaesthetic nursing perspective, that I will say this, that I also don't just work in operating theatre. Um, I often get deployed to go and work in radiology to do some sedation or general anaesthetics for a sedation. For a, for a scan, sorry. Um, also, I get called to sometimes an emergency airway in intensive care because we are seen as the airway expert nurses. So not saying that intensive care nurses don't have any airway skills because they do. They are very clever nurses. Um, but we, they might you know, intervene with an airway you know, once a week. We do it several times a day, every day. So we often get um, called in an emergency to go and um, deal with uh, an airway situation in an emergency department, on the wards as part of a, a MET call or an ALS, depending on where you work. 
Um, and also, <clears throat> we get um, we don't just deal with airway. We deal with all things um, blood products and pharmacology mm. and monitoring and all that kind of stuff as well. So it's not. I, I guess the reason I like anaesthetic nursing is the fact that I get a little taste of everything. So there's a bit of cardiology, there's a bit of respiratory, there's a bit of pharmacology, there's a bit of bioscience, there's a bit of practical skills with airways and cannulas and fluids and you've got to understand what the fluids are and you've got to realise why saline is so toxic and you've got to realise, you know, why giving too much blood is an issue, you know, why why don't we transfuse until we get to 80? There's all manner of things. Um, and I learned that st- I didn't learn that stuff immediately in nursing school. I've learned that stuff over, you know, 15, 16 years working. Yeah, it sounds like and I'm still of, learning. a lot of experience. So that's awesome, yeah. Now, you mentioned a couple of scary things such as toxicity and hygiene, you know, terrifying words, which reminds me of this really, really amazing quote that I heard recently, which is a hammer can be used to fix things or it can be used to kill people. So <laughs> medicine, health, nursing, it's all a little bit like that. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to edit out that laughter. I'm going to keep that in. <laughs> anyway, so medicine, health, nursing, it's all a little bit like that because... We can do so much good for patients, but we just have to make sure we do it in the right way. We don't want to do surgeries in a way that introduces more infection into people. Mm. So that's really important to, to remember. And that's why you know, we have so much responsibility in our roles. Now, on the plus side of you know, this whole very scary wearing mask hygiene type thing, on the plus side, you get to wear scrubs when you go to work. And if you find the right size, they can be very comfortable. If you find the, you know, the wrong size, it might kind of look like a dress. But, but you get to wear scrubs, which is maybe a good thing in case any blood products or other unsavory products sort of squirt onto you or you get um, you know, terrifying stuff happening to you. So on that note, how did you deal with the first, let's say, gory or emergency sort of situation that you've come across? I imagine as a nurse, I would come across a lot of firsthand confronting situations. Yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, everyone has their thing, right? I think you actually spoke on that podcast, mm. uh, on your podcast before, everyone's got their thing. Mm. Um, I started my anaesthetic nursing career at um, Concord Hospital. However, my first job, my first ward placement was a tra- as a trainee enrolled nurse at 18 on the trauma orthopedics plastics wow. wards at, Li- at Liverpool Hospital. Yep. So not a small hospital no. um, and one that's re- definitely recognised as a major trauma centre yeah, for Sydney. Right. Um, how did I deal with the first gory situation? Yeah. Um, I was, it's funny, I was reading something today and you don't, you're not born or you're not um, automatically given this inherent ability to just cope and deal with the situation. But sometimes, um, if you've got a catastrophic situation for me, I sometimes have to a little bit dehumanise the patient at the time. And we have the advantage in operating theatre of covering everyone up with drapes so the patient doesn't necessarily have a face at the time. Um, And so we're just dealing with the situation. But sometimes, for me, the way I approach a crisis situation or a gory situation is you've just got to realise that what the interventions that you're doing for the patient is making that patient's life better. They're already having a crap day, all right? If they've, you know, if they've got a big cut on their arm and mm. there's flesh everywhere, yeah. <laughs> they're already having a crap day, all right? You're not there to make their day shiny and sunshine and rainbows and leprechauns and pots of gold. <laughs> However, you are there to try and give the patient the best care possible, mm. 
And that's kind of how I then approach anything to do with gore. It's like the patient can't help it. You know, if you have someone who's floridly septic and is sweating through six lots of bed sheets and is really unwell and is throwing up everywhere and, you know, is bleeding or whatever, they can't help that. It's not a person... You don't need to take that kind of stuff personally. It's not a personal indictment on your ability as a nurse to care for that patient. What it actually is is I then approach it as I'm here to try and make their life better for a little bit. And that's that's it's kind of seems very ethereal and you know, mystical. But to me, that's the way I approach any gore situation is I didn't cause this patient to have this yeah. situation, so it's not my fault. Yeah. Um, and the patient, you know, 98% of the time, it's not their fault they're in this situation. So you've just got to just try and make their day better. Um, you know... There are smells, there are sights that you see that you kind of go, that's unpleasant. Mm. But I guess as you develop your career and as you, in, I will say, day one, week week one, day one, hour one, if you come across a gory situation, you're probably not going to cope with it that well. You're probably going to want to throw your hands up in the air and want to run the opposite way. Whether you're an intern, whether you're a you know, registered nurse, mm. an enrolled nurse, whatever, you're going to want to run away. And... It's just a matter of no one's expecting you to be a superhero. Just work within the scope of practice that you have at that time. So no one's expecting an intern to be able to crack a chest open and put their hand straight onto an aorta and stop the bleeding. It's, it's just not going to happen. Right, because right? that's also very hygienic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's the thing. Like, like no one's going to expect you yeah. to be able to do that. Yeah. So this ties back into how to deal with the gore situation. You, you just deal with the situation that's in front of you at the time and then debrief about it later. And then as you get better, as you get more experience, you have more and more skills to get. Yeah, cope. and you talk to people around you. And that's not necessarily doctors talking to doctors and nurses talking to nurses. We're all about the multidisciplinary team now. We're all about people recognising, as we said before, the mac and cheese incident. Yeah. We, work better to, we work to get better together. Yeah. So therefore, we need to talk to each other about how we feel about things, how this has gone. Um, and if there is a major catastrophic incident, often there will be a formal debrief process where um, some psychologists may get involved or whatever, and it will be a formal debrief process as you know a multidisciplinary team. So it's not nurses with nurses and doctors with doctors, and it's not a blame game, and it's not, well, doctor so-and-so did this, or well, nurse so-and-so did that. And that. It's not a finger-pointing exercise. It's about dealing with the situation so that... There isn't this element of burnout and people going, well, why the hell did I spend seven years at uni going to be a doctor? Like, what's the point? And just for the listeners, there was some pretty wild finger pointing yeah. that Pete was, was talking about that, which is amazing to watch. Now, and another thing that's really important to remember is that, like you said, we're all on the same team. So I think having the common goal, remembering that probably helps you get through tough days. And if anything illustrates how common that goal is and how, in a sense, how little the roles matter because we're all players on the same team. I think it's the idea that in the US compared to Australia, nurses have a slightly different role. So for example, I think in the US, nurses can do a lot of uh, blood taking, cannulation, that sort of mm. thing. In Australia, their role is a little bit different and you focus on other activities and um, often that's left to the, the intern doctor or something like that. So the fact that it sort of doesn't matter across countries who does that job, as long as the job gets done, I think kind of highlights that yeah. team aspect. Yeah. Well, it is, I mean, and that's yeah, a whole, whole other world of why mm. that's gone that way. Mm. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's just, it's about achieving the common goal. 
Um, and if it's about helping out where you can, if, you, if you've got a skill that can help someone out, then that's fine. There have been situations, and rather than waiting for someone to come from a theatre to put a cannula in in recovery, I can just step out of my room, go and put a cannula in the patient if they need it, and then it's done with. We're not waiting for an hour. Because if we wait an hour for a patient to get a cannula, and they really need that antibiotics to prevent you know, them getting septic, or they really need that bolus of fluid to treat their blood pressure, you don't want to be waiting for someone to come and put a drip in to deal with that. Um, same as, you know, I've had physios put bedpans under patients because it's just, you know, rather than pull a nurse away from another patient yeah. just to put a bedpan in, they're happy to do that. So it's all about working together for the common goal. Yeah, that's right. Now, hopefully people who have been working in a team with nurses and doctors together for a while, hopefully they would have adjusted and, and found their sort of flow already. So maybe this is a question more for junior doctors who are about to start their careers. What are the biggest mistakes you see junior doctors do when they just start working in a new team? Or what can junior doctors do to make nurses' jobs easier? I think the first thing, the first thing you need to do is you actually need to introduce yourself. Mm. Even if you think like you've been introducing yourself for three months, yeah. there are different nurses working on different wards, on different shifts, so they may never have met you before. So they just see this person in business attire with a stethoscope around their right. neck and they don't know whether you're med student two or whether you're you know, senior registrar four. Because yeah. you've got to realise it's not just the interns that change every year. There's the whole rotational thing of all the trainees change hospitals every yeah. year. So we've got no idea who you are. So in February, it's that who's the, regist- who's the registrar for this team? I've got no idea. I honestly have no idea. Um, so introduce yourself. Make sure that people are aware of who you are and what your role is. You know, you say, hi, my name's Lily and I'm the intern for this team for this three-month period. Here's my pager number. You know, write it up on a whiteboard somewhere. Don't necessarily have a selfie with everyone, <laughs> you know, or whatever. But just so people are aware yeah. and, and approach it with a friendly at, at, uh, attitude because going back, you know, we're all here to work together. There's no one role that's better than another. Mm-hmm. So... We've done away with this whole doctor-nurse hierarchy thing. They're very much just all working together to achieve the same thing. So, um, you know, approach it with a friendly atmosphere. Um, You know, and you never know, you might get a sneaky brownie or two from the nurses. You know, they might bribe you with food occasionally because if you're nice, then, you know, they might go, hey, you want to, you know, we're buying pizza tonight. Do you want to get in on that or whatever? Like, it's all about developing a friendly workplace atmosphere because in a crisis situation or when you're having a tough day, they're the people that you're going to rely on to back you up and back you up clinically but back you up you know moral uh, for moral support as well you know and you know, be encouraging to each other so that was the first thing introduce yourself and just a quick note on that if you're ever walking around a hospital and someone in your team is giving you a funny look it's probably either you've got food on your face or you haven't introduced yourself and you need to go do that because mm. they're wondering who you are mm. um that's true. The other thing for junior doctors also is um, don't get caught up in only relying on your medical school colleagues for support because you're going to be flung to the four, four winds. Um, you know, some of you will be in different states. Some of you will be, yeah, you will have friends and that's fine. You'll be able, and with social media these days, you'll be able to talk to each other. But talk to the nurses about stuff. Um, a lot, there are a lot of senior nurses out there who will know probably more about those medications that you're about to prescribe than what you do at the time. So while you're frantically flicking through the MIMS trying to work yeah. out what the adequate <laughs> dose is, because I've never heard of this medication before, but because you have the magical doctor name in front of you and you're the guys, you're the, you're the person that's been left to write up these 10 med charts for your team, um, you know, 
you can often use them as a reference point. You know, how much is yeah? You know, how much would people ordinarily give of X medication, and why do they give it, and how does it work? Um, and any nurse with their salt with experience should be able to tell you that because they know what a regular dose is. They know that giving someone 20 milligrams of morphine subcut is a huge dose of morphine and you're probably going to kill someone or at least give them significant respiratory distress and that would then make your life tougher because then you've got to attend an arrest and all that kind of stuff. Certainly not good for the patient. Not good for the patient either. Um, So, you know, use your nurses as a resource. Um, and just come in with an atmosphere of learning. Don't don't think that just because you finished your four years or seven years of medical school that you've got it all crossed and dotted and ready to go and you're a doctor now. Um, it's all a learning experience. And I'll say this to the nurses that are listening too as well. Just because you come out of university after three years and you're registered Nurse Kelly or whatever your name is um, doesn't necessarily mean that you are God's gift to nursing. It doesn't necessarily mean that you've got it all sorted. It means that... Yep, we're letting you loose on the public. We're going to pay you for the privilege. However, you've got a lot of learning to still catch up on. Mm. And that's general philosophical advice for everyone, really. Never mm. stop learning. Always mm. keep learning. Mm. Yeah. Um, but then also just um, be aware of what your patients are doing and their names as well. So it's not the fractured knoff in bed 59. Yep. It's Mrs. So-and-so. Or it's not, you know, oh, the guy in respiratory failure. Because, you know, if you ring up the phone and, you know, uh, I'm looking after the guy in respiratory failure. Yeah, which one? This is the respiratory (laughs) ward. You know, they're all on CPAP at the moment. You're going to have to help us out. So actually, you know, find out who your patients are, use their names. Mm -hmm. You know, bed numbers do help because it means we can locate it. Because if there's four four Mr. Smiths on the Mm -hmm. ward, you're going to actually, you know, be more beneficial. But just know who your patients are and know a bit about them. So when the nurses ring you, um, because the nurses are your frontline observations, right? They are the guys and girls who actually look at your patient 24-7 and they can tell you when there are slight changes. So when a nurse rings you with concern about a patient, they're probably actually concerned about it. It's not something to be taken lightly or kind of, oh, what's this nurse talking about? It's not, that's not the right attitude to have. If a nurse is ringing you with a concern, they're actually concerned and they actually want, again, the best welfare for the patient. So, you know... Know your patients' names, know a bit about them, mm. um, and also to stay within the discussion and actually know what's going on. There have been countless situations where, um, you know, I've asked a doctor about a specific patient, oh, I don't know anything about that patient, but they're under your team. And I realise that as an intern, you're serving, you know, four consultants, which is three registrars, which is two residents, mm. and yourself. And that might have a cohort of, you know, 35 patients. I understand, but that there's a lot of patients there, but you still, it's still helpful if you know a little bit about what's going on with your patients. And look, I know it's mentally taxing because you're also trying to work out a new workplace, trying to work out who's who in the zoo, trying to work out, um, you know, where are the cannulas? Where do the cannulas <laughs> live? Yeah. Where are the blood tubes? I've got no idea where anything is. Um, but nurses will be able to you know, help you out in that regard too in terms of locating stuff because they're the ones who end up restocking it all anyway. And if you're walking around trying to find something to do, restock the cannula trolley. Good advice there. <laughs> okay, great. And you also talked about patients. Now, from the patient's point of view, what can we do 
as junior doctors or as a team or, or as a senior doctor or senior nurse, what can we do to make a good patient experience? Get them to know the, get, get to know them a little bit and get to know why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. So, you know, there are, I had a prime example, I had a young guy who's from regional New South Wales who was assaulted by his best friend and, you know, he had a fractured jaw and he was in recovery and I was looking after him. Now, I had to recognise that he was actually going to have some kind of psychological thing going on as to why his friend assaulted him and that was his more concerned rather that was his bigger concern rather than a little bit of pain from having his mandible fixed yeah so it's about understanding why the patients are experiencing what they are and realize they're not a disease patients are not a disease patients are patients who have a disease who have an illness so it's not you know um the guy with you know the guy who's aspirated in bed fifty four. Well, why is he aspirated? Well, it's because he's you know lost his swallow reflex because he has esophageal cancer, which has then led him to, you know, led him to aspirate saliva or aspirate food, which has then caused him to get pneumonia. Which is you know it's all it's no patient is a disease, and there's a whole story there. Now I'm not saying that you need to be able to sit at the end of the bed and spend twelve hours a day with your patients, <laughs> getting to know them and their family. Yeah. Because in an acute tertiary hospital, there's no time for that. You might have fifteen minutes with that patient, but at least you know, get to know their name. They get to know your name because the intern, the junior doctor, is the front line of the medical. They are there at the pointy end. Yeah, and introductions are really important, like you said. That's right. Um, but also just getting to know why they are and what their family dynamics are. You know, there are patients out there who don't have any family and that will be a tough situation for them because, you know, they might have no visitors. And so you don't walk into that situation going, oh, so who visited you today? If they're, you know, really downheartened in the fact that they don't have anyone with them. Mm-hmm. So, um, and also a big thing in Western Sydney where I work, um, there are a lot of people who have come from um, cultures that don't speak English. Um, and um, so they uh, have trouble communicating. And so they might have had some English at some point, but due to some kind of cognitive disorder or dementia, they may have regressed into speaking their original language and not understanding English. Um, but also people who have emigrated here, be it refugees or whatever, and they rely on their family to translate for them. When they're alone at midnight in their bed, they can't communicate with you. So you have to be able to adapt and sort of kind of analyse what's going on. Um before you start calling phone interpreters and all that kind of stuff, because if they're in pain mm. and they're rolling around in pain, you can tell that someone's in pain. It's a it's an international language. It's yeah. not it's not uh, um, you know you don't have to use the specific words. Oh, I have terrible pain in yeah. my left lower leg, doctor. You know, if someone's yeah. clutching their leg and rolling around the bed and screaming, they're probably in pain, <laughs> no matter what language they're in. Mm. Um, but it is important to be aware that the cultures that people who have come from cultures that don't speak English their first language it can be a very frightening experience for them being in an av- being in a place where they don't speak any English and I think I use this analogy with you when when I met you for the first time in mm. theater if you were in India mm. and no one spoke English in the hospital and you broke your leg and there was no one in the hospital speaking English but they were all speaking Hindi and they had no idea. Yes. As soon as you found someone who spoke English, you would latch onto that person. That's right. <laughs> you would latch onto that person as, oh, someone who speaks my language. Even if it's broken, it would still, you know, yeah. mean so much more to yeah. you to have the that attachment. Thing, the closest yeah. familiar thing. 
Same can be said in mm. Sydney, where I work. Mm. You know, there are a lot of people who have emigrated here from other countries who don't speak English as their primary language, have very little English, so you need to be able to be a reassuring face for them. You know, approach it with a smile. Don't be a grumpy grouch. Don't be someone who is, um, you know, a cranky, cranky sod all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, you need to be able to approach um, the patients as individuals and just be... You know, a helpful friend. I think it's the whole Patch Adams quote. You know, what is a doctor than a you know a helpful friend who can you know help you at a time of need? You know, to quote a very average Robin Williams movie, but you know, <laughs> still, still a good quote. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that's really awesome. And previously we had spoken about informed consent and how important yep. that is. It's a part of uh, what you see as you know patient advocacy, making sure they understand, making sure you're doing the right thing for them, keeping them you know, up to date, which is part of the nurse's job as well, making mm. sure the patient knows what's happening. So that's mm. all really important. Now, on that good point that you made about a disease is not a patient, a patient is not a disease, I've got a simultaneously great and terrible analogy. So imagine if you're just walking along the street and you happen to step into some, you know, a patch of dog feces. You don't want to be labeled as the person who steps into dog feces and everyone starts pointing and laughing at you and Nelson from The Simpsons does his ha-ha thing. <laughs> what you prefer to think of it as is just... On that day, you're a fairly normal person who just accidentally happened to step into it. Tomorrow, you'll be you know, back to your old self. So we don't want to give them that permanent label, that sort sure. of thing. Now, on that uplifting note, let's end by making some enemies. So we, we've had an amazing podcast episode with you, Pete. You've given us amazing insights into nursing, told us about the different aspects of it, how do nurses and doctors can work really well together. Let's end with a joke that you've got about cardiothoracic surgeons. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, so, okay, the joke is, what's the difference between God and the cardiothoracic, cardiothoracic surgeon? God doesn't think he's a cardiothoracic surgeon. Ha ha. Ha ha. Excellent. And on that note, that's the end of this episode. And that's we will terrible. and we will probably not ever do an episode on cardiothoracic yeah. surgery. Thank you so much for your time, Pete. It's been no excellent. Worries. Thank you. Thank you, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Welcome to the fan feedback section of How to Win Friends and Influenza, where we go to absolutely real fans with a completely genuine, not staged feedback. Now it's time for the jingle. How to win friends and influence. Uh. Um, um, moving on, Anushka, what do you think of this podcast? I thought this podcast was amazing. It was really inspiring and it encouraged me to like, like, wait, wait, wait. What's this podcast about? Uh, um, German Dave, what do you think of this podcast? Great podcast. Amazingly educational. Next time I don't need to go to the doctor. Uh, uh, moving on. Oh, Stan, what's your view on this podcast? Thanks to what I learned on this podcast, I have yet to be sued for medical malpractice. Uh, Justin, anything to add? Yeah, no, it was really interesting. I've, I feel like I've learned a lot, and it's just, it's just great to listen to, you know. Thank you so much for that awesome feedback, Justin. 
Katie, do you have anything to add? Did you know that when Spanish influenza first came to Australia, the Sydney quarantine station would take everyone they suspected of having the Spanish influenza and they would put them in one room with a single vent and leave them there? No, it's not. Yeah. It's okay. Lily can fix it in post. I can, but I won't. <laughs> I oh, fucking hate you sometimes, man. <laughs> what you do to me? Oh my god, Stan, you missed your cue. Please note the views expressed in the fan segment belong only to the fans. That is, they do not reflect the views of the podcast people or the doctors or any kind of medical advice and do not reflect the views of this. I've forgotten the name of your podcast. I'm really sorry. How to win friends and influenza. How to, how to win friends and influenza. Does not reflect that. The end.